Hi and welcome to Perfect in Balance, a few rules for achieving success, happiness and greater fulfilment in our life. I'm your host Jeff Way and this is episode one, focusing on your strengths. I'm delighted to introduce you to Mike Pegg, writer, mentor and pioneer of strength coaching. Mike has spent the last 40 years helping people to build on their strengths and achieve their picture of success. Mike is a fascinating guy and during the interview shares insights around strength coaching, provokes different ideas on work-life balance and talks about the importance of us having a picture of success. Listen out for Bonnie the dog partway through the interview and the competition at the end. Here's Mike. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Choosing to be excellent. <laughs> I love that, Mike. Is, is that how you choose to start every day? Yeah, yeah. Well, I uh, choose to start each day by um, lying in bed and thinking about what I'm going to do that day. And because it was from the old thing of you. Did you ever read one of the very, very, very first books on priority management? Alan Lakin, How to Take Control of Your Time and Your Life. No, oh, that was from the 1970s, and that was the book. And out of that, of course, he, he actually inspired lots of people. That's where um, people like, you know, the Time Manager International and also some of the COVID people got a lot of their ideas. Uh, and so but if you actually, essentially, Alan Lake, and it, it's still available, you can actually download it as a PDF. So it's Alan Lake in L-A-K-E-I-N, and how to take control of your time and your life. And it was the one, because essentially it says that people have A, Bs, and C goals. And then under your A's, Bs, and C's, you can have your priorities one, two, and three. And it says essentially peak performance focus in the morning on their A1 goal. And that's what they do. And that's what uh, I tend to do. So, to, because also I'm very, uh, my creative prime times are interesting. The whole idea of, uh, I learned about the whole idea of prime time from Rollo May, the psychologist, existential psychologist, and who talked about prime times because he was very much, towards his later years, he was very much self-critical and said, um, I, I, I can write a lot in the morning, but then I, I'm not able to do it in the afternoon. And I, I, I sort of punished myself, criticized myself for years for that until I realized it was all about prime times. And so it says, now what I do is I sort of catch the wave, protect the front. And, I, and what we do is, in terms of um, energy management, as you know, is get people to actually say, what's the prime times of the day for you? And can you in some way ring fence them? Because it's like a wave that will never come again. And once it's gone, you know, you're never going to be able to use it. Uh, it's gone forever. So, therefore, and, uh, so for example, when's your prime times? What's your times of the day when you have most energy? Definitely the morning. Yeah. So, yeah. So, again, it's that it's very much the uh, thing of being, having that morning and being able to um, feel actually I can use this time. And then the interesting piece is that because um, I used to do a lot, obviously, a lot of writing and people who are writers sometimes, if they don't understand about prime times, they start criticizing themselves because they can't actually get the flow going at a certain time of the day. But actually, if you actually you can liberate them by saying, well, look. If you've got two or three hours, you protect that, that can be immensely productive. And the rest of the day, you can potter around. And that's when you, and, and you, let, you, you come down and you, can, you allow yourself to potter around. And that's when also other ideas come. So it's about being able to, I mean, I used to teach courses on creative writing, not that I'm a particularly good writer, and there's lots of things I do grammatically wrong in writing. But what I did was I educated people to look back at when we, when have you written things that you've actually enjoyed writing and been satisfying? And what were the conditions? What was the times of the day? Where were you? Where were you sitting in the room? How did you do it? What did you, did you have music on? What did you have? So again, it's a bit like sports psychology. You look back and reproduce your best performances and what were the principles you followed then? And of course, many of them were trying to write by they didn't actually understand the principles of when they were most creative and most able to write. So they were pushing, it's like pushing water uphill. Absolutely fascinating. I'm, I'm delighted that you've agreed to uh, be my first guest on, on a brand new podcast. Uh, so thank you very much, uh, first of all. Uh, it is great to be able to speak to you again, because um, I know we spoke at some point last year, I think it was, when I was 
getting into the, the flow of writing and, and exploring that. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So um, ask away whatever is the right framework for you. Well, as you know, I put some questions together. Yeah. Um, really, it's a guide, but but I'm sure you will um, take me where you want to take me in terms of what you want to share. Um, you've 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 written a lot of books. Um, yes. is, is it twelve? That's twelve that I see. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And and, and you've co-authored one as well. Mm. Yeah. Um, what what were and actually what are your your reasons for? For writing that, I mean, you've, you've mentioned already that you you enjoy it. Um, that there are better writers, and you're not necessarily grammatically correct. But but why why carry on writing? Well, I think the key is that I, I think it's it, it it's about understanding your tradition and my tradition, uh, which I started to realise in my early twenties, was. Uh, well, let me let me take a step back about what I mean by tradition. One of the things that you do with people who are creative is you try to help them to ask them your tradition. And what, who are the kind of people in your that you admire in life, uh, who have gone before you or are the present? What do they do right? So my tradition is people like Maslow and Frankel. It is not necessarily that I actually could, uh, I'm obviously not as good as those people or as famous as those people. But that's the tradition. It's the humanistic existential way of, of showing people positive possibilities. So, uh, if, and if people find their tradition, they realise they're not alone. People have gone before and they will go afterwards. And also that enables people to actually see that they're part of that. They're part of that river uh, going along. My tradition is those people, Maslow, Frankel and so on. And I realized that around in my early 20s. And what I saw with these people, people like Frankel and Maslow, was that they were actually very good at making positive models and practical and passing on practical tools that people could use to be in their lives and work. And so not only did they believe in humanity's possibilities and study humanity at its best, they also gave people practical tools people they could follow to use to follow those principles in their own way. This was a kind of interesting one because at the time I was running therapeutic communities and with therapeutic communities, the whole idea was, as you know, what great leaders or great organizations do is they try to create a positive culture in which motivated people can achieve peak performance. So their job is to create that culture. I'm sometimes politically correct by saying it's not the leader's job to actually motivate people. It's the leader's job to create a motivating mission and environment and then give people the support they need to be able to do the job, that kind of thing. Because I was, I was quite successful at running therapeutic communities, then it's a question of how do you actually pass on that knowledge? And therefore, that's why I started to write. And actually, to be able to write in a way that actually gave some of the people something very, very practical. Yeah? Because the whole, because my background was about studying success. Because fortunately, I was no good at school, so I could stay home and self-learn. And because I could self-learn, I read lots and lots of things. It meant I left school at 15, and I worked in a factory for six years, and I was not particularly good at that. But then I was managed managed to get out of that with the help of a teacher, uh, and so on. And then I'd started to do voluntary work full time. Um, then the mentors I met were fantastic because they essentially said the important thing is to study what works, simplify what works in a profound way and share what works. Because any idiot can tell you what goes wrong. They can tell you how things fail. So, for example, today you have loads of books about seven dysfunctional ways in, in organizations and how people mess their lives up. Anybody can do that. Yeah, but that's being a critic. It's not actually being a creator. What people want are practical tools they can use to achieve success. So my job was to study success, study what worked. So when I started working with therapeutic community, well, the, before I started working with therapeutic communities, I went to meet people and said to some of the great sages in, in childcare and said, what's helped you to grow most in your life? And they said I had somebody who encouraged me, somebody who made me feel the centre of the world, somebody who had listened to my story, somebody who helped me to actually... Uh, understand my picture of success and then they said is it okay if I share some ideas so of course these encouragers follow many of the paths that trusted advisors follow now 
they do exactly those sorts of things. They make people feel wanted, the centre of the world, they listen, then they say, take care, I share some ideas and so on. Because they realise people have to have the will before they can learn the skill. So they make that psychological contact, it's okay to share some ideas. And I was doing that, and I was doing that, uh, I was studying uh, therapeutic communities that worked, uh, it was pretty obvious what was successful. It was, number one, they built that culture where actually people had to fight to get in. So whether they were an addict trying to reform or whether they were a person who had some label like bipolar or was suicidal, uh, the crucial thing there was to be able to, to make the professional deal clear to them when they came to the community. So we would say, all right. Uh, we believe that you can choose to be creative if you want. We believe that you can choose to take responsibility if you want. We believe that you can choose to actually use tools to actually live the life you want, providing you don't other, hurt other people. If you want to come here, we can help you and give you some tools to do that. But there are certain uh, guidelines. We only take people who choose to take responsibility all the time. Uh, if, so if you come here, uh, yeah, meetings throughout the day, um, we want you to be on time for them and encourage people. If you're 10 seconds late for a meeting, you've chosen to be irresponsible, which is actually the thing that got you into trouble in the first place, so it's probably not the right place for you. So we, everybody's got a sad story, so would you actually like to actually reflect for 10 minutes and decide if you really want to come here? Because we can help you to do what you want in your life, but there are certain guidelines we offer that to go there, for the, not for because it's our whim, but because they help people to take charge of their lives and work towards their picture of success. Is that something you want to do? If you don't, it's fine. We've got lots of people who do. So it was studying what worked and then also expecting the young people to really, really uh, take, not only take responsibility, but to see the positive parts of them. And so whenever they came, for instance, after about a month, I would then take them, for example, to a local university to teach social workers. And these kids who were 14, 15, 16 would hold a seminar for about an hour teaching the social workers. Here's the do's and don'ts if you're going to work with people like us. So because it was very much into role theory, Herman Goffman and role theory at the time. And so we realized that people could either get time by actually being positive or by presenting problems. A lot of the kids had learned to get time by, time by presenting problems. So we said there are positive ways to get time. It's up to you. It's your choice. Which way do you want to go? And so I was doing that kind of thing in therapeutic communities. But then looking at the tradition of people who've gone that way, uh, it was a question of how do you share those messages with the world? And that's why I started to write. And, and the, the, I first of all wrote about my experiences, but then after that started to try to put things into very practical ways that people could use in their own lives and work, and they could take the best and leave the rest. Does that give the answer? Well, it absolutely does. Um, and having read a couple of your books, uh, one which you very kindly sent to me, Yeah, I think, I think it is. I think the crucial thing is that uh, although I've written 12 books, uh, like most authors, I can probably say I've written two and reproduced them six times. Um, because uh, essentially there are three themes. One is about building on strengths and how you can actually um, build on your strengths, do satisfying work and, get, uh, and make a living doing it. And at the time actually help others to achieve success. Because I learned very early on it was all about strengths finding sponsors will pay you and, and helping those sponsors to achieve success, which means giving great service, that kind of thing. So there's one, a, lot, a lot of the books are around that, how you can actually do that and shape your life. There's another really around the art of um, mentoring. And if you actually, the art of mentoring was a book I produced in the early 90s, and that's because I was working in the early days with Air Miles, which is 
bit of a different organization now, but in those days it was very pioneering. And they just started a mentoring program. And then I got a call from the MD saying, can you help us with this? Because there are people going off doing lots of different things, even they think it's mentoring. And so I wrote a book about that and how people could actually uh, be good mentors and pass on knowledge in a way so as people could achieve their picture of success. So there was that really. So it's essentially there's only those kind of two themes throughout the books, you know, the, uh, uh, but you try to bring them to life with lots of things. And I mean, the other is, is the theme is the thing of super teams of how to build a team that has a very clear purpose, principles and picture of success. Because when it comes down to it, individuals essentially, if they just say, what's my purpose? What's the principles I want to follow in my life? And what's my picture of success for the next year or for when I'm 80? That's what they always just come back to. Uh, and to actually reflect, spend time and, and clarify what that purpose is, whether they're running, whether they're meditating. So it's about the art of recentering. Or even in a team, it's the art of recentering on what's the purpose. And, and lots of people get neurotic about purpose and say, oh, gosh, it has to be enlightenment and stuff like that. And I must do this. And I'm my road to Damascus. It, it's, it's a very interesting way that you help people to find purpose. Well, there are two ways. One is that you help them to think, just think about what gives you positive energy. And like with, when I run courses sometimes, and I still do run some courses, I, I start out with asking the person to write down uh, what, five things that give them positive energy in their personal life and five in their professional life. And either just make write them down and share them or make a flip chart of them and put them around the room. And then we get people to talk about those. And of course, it, 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 the, the tone is already set. Uh, and then when you start looking at these things, you can see the recurring themes. And the other recurring theme would, uh, to help people, uh, and I say, do the things that give you positive energy. So for example, a very classic one in now is you get what's called post-purpose syndrome, like a per person has uh, won an Olympic medal or just sold their business or done something. And they've been working to this for years. And actually, they think that when they get there, they'll get to utopia or paradise. Well, of course, they do for about 10 seconds and then there's an emptiness ah, because it's a question of, well, I've been working to this for so many years. Now, what's the next thing? And then and comes that kind of existential vacuum. So they get very worried about that. And so it's all right, fine. Just start doing things that give you positive energy. And it might be playing music. It might be running. It might be being with certain people. It might be a project. It might be something else. It's OK. And then start exploring that. And then serendipity can take over. Huh? Um, that, so you always say a positive energy project, and that might result in a purpose. The other way to find a purpose is that uh, a very simple one where you ask people to think about what for you have been two or three deeply satisfying projects in your life and what was satisfying about them. And that sounds like a very HR question. But when you actually ask people about that, then they, they talk from it and they say, oh, well, for example, it was when I... I mean, I, I remember building a website at university and it was the first one and it helped the people to actually the student, other students to get you know, sort of travel concessions. And it was did this. It was great. And I did that for a, a year or two. And then I got bored with it and, I, and so on. And I, I did something else. And the other thing was, well, I actually I saw an opportunity and I built this thing and then we provided the service. It was successful and then I got bored again. So obviously this kind of person, their purpose is to build a sort of positive prototypes that help people to shape the future, yeah? uh, that kind of thing. Now, the way they express that might be quite different. Yeah? Yeah? Or another person will be say, well, actually, the time, and I had this the other week, uh, the things that I really enjoy, I'm in this job in marketing, but what I really enjoy is when my friends come and have a problem and I help to sort them out. Yeah? And I said, well, do you also do that with clients? Oh, yeah, when I love, I love to go to clients and... And what's, if they give me a juicy problem and I can sit down with them and we can look at what's the real result to achieve and then I can share some ideas. So obviously that kind of person's vocation is to act, is a bit like an educator. They want to enable that person to be able to shape their future, huh? that kind of thing. So you can find the recurring themes. And what the crucial thing is, is, is this is your vocation, but what people confuse the vocation with the vehicle. So the vocation, because there are only so many vocations in life, and they're all the basic human activities, which is nurturing, encouraging, teaching, trading, performing, communicating, those kind of things, uh, designing, problem solving. But what makes it different is the vehicle you choose to express them. Uh, and that might be in a job. It might be in a relationship. It might be building something. 
And so, because some people go for the job, they get there and say, actually, I thought it was going to make me happy, and it hasn't. It's because they don't know the vocation. And the way you choose the vehicle is you say, what if I actually, looking at things, it's the three Fs, looking at the field of activity, what is it that I find fascinating? Yeah? So, for example, you'll find fascinating, at the moment, you say it's life-work balance or life-work blend, but ultimately, I think the thing you possibly may find fascinating is how can people be, you know, to use the cliche, the best version of themselves, yeah? uh, to actually fulfill, to be the best they can be. Yeah? Yeah? yeah. And the other stuff is the how. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the goal is fairly clear. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because your vocation is to be an enabler. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sat here listening to you and I'm thinking about my own vocation and that yeah. word enabler yeah. came to mind. Yeah. It's an enabler because if you see all great educators, they always go, they they try to encourage, educate, and then enable. Hmm? Uh, and, yeah. and they often start out by encouraging. Then they pass on tools, but ultimately they want to enable people to shape their futures in their own way. Hmm? That's yeah, yeah, that's true. And and again, reflecting as as you're speaking, I'm I'm probably in that position now where I am able to enable rather yeah. than just educate or encourage. Yeah. Um, if I was still in the corporate world, then the likelihood is I'd be encouraging and educating um, people to have less enabling. Yeah, well, you see, what you what you do is you enable people to uh, survive within parameters, whereas now you try to enable people to thrive. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. I, I love <laughs> I love how you've done that. Um, Mike, you you you've done an awful lot uh, in in your life so far. Um, at what point did you did you get really excited and passionate about strength coaching? I think it's probably. It was time I was about. It was in the early seventies, um, because what I did find was that I, my, having been able, able to educate myself uh, to work with people, I then tried to find some great teachers, and they were tremendous. And at that time, it was very much the, the route we took was probably much more existential therapy. Uh, it was about people make choices, and each choice has consequences. So it was you it, it gone from Maslow to people like William Glasser with reality therapy, and, and later on he called decision therapy. And I also had a, another great teacher called Tony Minocchio who talked about choices and consequences. But then I started to move towards studying great educators, and I went to see uh, an, uh, several of the great educators. Uh, at the time, there were three who were incredibly well-known uh, alternative educators. A.S. Neal with Summerhill, um, George Lyle with Finchton Manor, and a guy called David Wills, uh, who was changing what was then Borstals. Um, and what was very interesting about these people, they, were, they be able, I went to see those three. Uh, no, I didn't see A.S. Neal, I saw the others. Um, and they were tremendously encouraging to me. And... I asked them what was it they looked for in people. And I remember a guy called George Lywood uh, who ran this therapeutic community called Finchton Manor down in Kent. Uh, and he only took boys there. He was very, uh, it was, he only took very intelligent and creative boys. So Tom Robinson, the musician, went there. Alex Cornier, who was a jazz musician, went there uh, as kids. Uh, what was fascinating about him was this. He said, we get loads of busloads of people here who come and say, they look around and say, you get great results, but what is the program? And he says, what do you mean by program? He says, well, the thing is that the boys are just playing music. They're, they're playing football. They're helping each other. They're drinking out of jam pots. They're doing this. Uh, and, the ball, uh, and, and the staff are just watching. What are they doing? And, and George said, well, you're very observant because it's the hardest thing in, to do is to watch. And he says, they're watching for when that moment when the boy's body changes and that they come alive. When suddenly they're in harmony with something greater than themselves. And what they're trying to do is to follow that flow. And that's something I'm very interested in those moments of a sense of wonder that the young people experience and what they're in touch with. Today it will be called flow experiences and so on. Uh, Maslow called it sometimes peak experiences. But uh, then I started to say, well, actually, if people, what are they doing right then? So I started then studying success 
rather than strength, actually. And this was around 1974. And I started by studying success and said, well, what do people who are successful do right? Now, what I mean by successful is I ask people, you know, for you in your life, what is success? And um, they would say things, well, you know, the classic thing is, you know, when you're 80 and you're on your deathbed, if you've done these three things, what for you will mean that you, you die feeling happy? And they would, they would say the classic three things, which is one positive relationships, like these are the actual words I want our kids saying uh, about the childhood they had. Like, you know, our mother and father really encouraged us. They helped us to survive school. They helped us to do what we did best. They helped us to learn how to make decisions, that kind of thing. Um, and the second one was positive experiences, feeling alive in life and looking back in those positive memories. When I'm 80, I want to look back and say there's fantastic memories. And then making a positive contribution to the planet, using the gift that they've been given to give to other people. Um, and Eric Erickson called it generativity and that kind of thing, and passing on and nurturing future generations. So I started to ask individuals what actually has helped you to, uh, what's your picture of success and what have you done right then? And then I started to study teams and leaders, and so uh, sports teams and things. What do they do to be successful? And then I found that these people were successful. They'd followed certain strategies. Yes. But those strategies, interestingly, were based on building on their strengths. And that's how I came to strengths. So I didn't actually start with strengths. I actually worked backwards. And then I found that these people were also, in around 1974, I wrote, got the first article published that I wrote on strengths building and how to actually make a living doing what you love. Um, and so, and that was looking for when do people come alive? When are they in their element of ease and yet excel? And how can they make a living doing that? Those kind of things. So around 74, like 1974 or 75, I ran the first course in strength building. Uh, and it was a sort of five-day course for people. Um, and what was an interesting one with there was I'd been invited, after doing the therapeutic community work, I'd been invited to go a lot to Scandinavia. And... I would start and work with therapy programs there. What was interesting there was I started doing exercises where asking people to look at what do you do well rather than what do you just do badly. You know, and how can you help your residents to look at what they do well? When have they been in their life? When have they succeeded? When did they overcome, for example, a crisis in their life? Even if they were an addict, when did they overcome? What did they do right then? How can they follow those principles again in the future? And then I got approached miles of Scandinavia and says, the kind of stuff you're doing, it could actually apply to people who haven't got, got so-called problems. Everybody's got problems, but they might not have a label for them. And I said, fine. He said, well, are you willing to do courses? At the time, there was lots of money in Scandinavia for people for personal development. Are you willing to do programs for people to build on their strengths and look at how they can do satisfying work? I said, fine. And so, right, we'll do five-day programs. So I around from 1974 onwards, I was running five-day programs, Monday till Friday, where people could build on their strengths. And it was around the idea of encouragement, uh, but then uh, encouragement and strength building, and then how they could shape their futures inside or outside their organizations. And that sort of took off. So from about 74 onwards, and probably for the next eight years, my diary was virtually full of doing these courses, many of them five-day courses, but then I started getting invited into uh, schools and uh, in Scandinavia and working with the teachers and working with the students in schools and helping them to look at what they did best and how they could actually shape their futures. So that's how it happened. And again, a lot of serendipity. What I did, uh, what I did, decide very early on in around 1972-73 when setting up my own business was that essentially if you closed your eyes and listened to lots of people in development or consultancy or whatever, if you closed your eyes and listened to them, they're all saying the same cliches. So it was about really could you invent a language? Could you create your own language that actually will be a bit distinctive? Yeah? And at the time, because people were addicted to looking at their weaknesses, I decided to focus on strengths. Uh, and it's something I believed in, and it took off from there. So in, in your eyes then, Mike, why, why is nobody else, or why aren't more people focused on strengths rather than weaknesses or, or development areas? 
Well, I think nowadays, of course, uh, the last 30 years, the strength revolution has come along massively. Uh, uh, and so I think that um, uh, uh, if we actually have to look at the history of strengths, it started by and large after the Second World War with uh, Bernard Haldane, who was the, a, a British uh, doctor who went to America, couldn't get a job because his medical qualifications didn't fit. So, but he started working as a journalist, and then just after the Second World War, he was asked if he would actually help to uh, the veterans returning from the Second World War to um, uh, find jobs. And he said, "Well, I'm really, really willing to do that." But he took a very different approach. He asked them to talk about what was your most satisfying experiences before you went to the war. What were you actually you were doing then? What were you doing right? What were the principles you're following? Okay, how could we actually build on those strengths and then actually not only build on your strengths and look at what you're good at, but he also created something called the job magnet, which today would be called networking, where he's saying what you have to do is look at you what you do best, uh, what is deeply satisfying that you do well. Now, how can you translate that into something that could be offered to an employer? And we're using here an inside-out approach rather than an outside-in approach. Um, but it's, and I've got my dog coming out, and one of my dogs, this, this is Bonnie, okay? Uh, you might be, Hi, Bonnie, perfect. <laughs> she might be, <laughs> might be joined by others later. Okay, so the key is, so uh, then, so, so it's not only enough to know your, your strengths, you have to know the employer's world, and you have to know the employer's world and the problems they face. So how can you translate what you offer into something that will help them to succeed? And then he got people to write letters to people they knew uh, they knew and say, look, I'm looking for this. I'm not necessarily looking for a job from you, but do you know anybody who might be interested in this sort of thing? And that's called a job magnet. And that act, so that was around from around 1947 onwards. He was the pioneer in strengths. A lot of his ideas were taken by other people. Some were converted and called transferable skills, like Richard Bollas called them transferable skills and that kind of thing. Um, but it, Haldine uh, was the pioneer. He actually then sold his consultancy, and the consultancy eventually got a bad name. Haldine Associates got a bad name, but he separated from it after that. And then at the same time, of course, um, there was Dan Clifton, uh, Don Clifton, uh, who, who was starting as well, looking at what, uh, who eventually was known as the father of Strength Finder, and he was starting to look at what, what people's exceptional experiences. But of course, this is this tradition is very, very deep. It's very, very deep in Montessori. It's deep in uh, Froebel, the, the start, the kindergarten, all those centuries ago. Put the kid in the in the garden and see what when where they come alive and follow it. And then, of course, with John Dewey's work in, in the early nineteen, uh, early twentieth century, an education of you know essentially the basic. You, the learner learns what the learner wants to learn. So when you offer stuff, find out what the learner wants to learn and go from there. And then strengths appear. And because of my background was also in sports psychology in the mid 70s, because in Sweden I was teaching leaders in sports and about encouraging and looking for when somebody would come alive or when a team would come alive. I mean, it was, uh, we looked at that and what were you doing right then uh, when you actually played that well and how could you follow those principles in the future? So there has always been this tradition of strengths. But, but the reality is that the mythology, there's been a load of mythology about um, that you grow more by understanding your weaknesses and your, from your failures and your strengths. That is not true at all. It's just because people haven't analyzed when they succeeded. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, it's a bit like, you know, you are you know, a Liverpool fan. And if you start looking at what were the times that in the old days, Liverpool was always inevitably seemed to score in the last few minutes. What were they doing right then? Yeah? And what they were doing were pressing forward, passing to the nearest person in the red shirt, running off it, pressing, 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 pressing until the 95th minute with the cops sucking the goal in. So how can you actually do more of that? Yeah? rather than be hesitant, sit back, etc., etc. If you're hesitant and sit back and lose a goal and then start worrying about why you did it, you're never going to build on your strengths and you're never you're not going to score too many last-minute goals. Yeah? Yeah. So, again, you're looking at this. So a classic one in sports is this. If you ever got it, so, for instance, you had this whole idea of 
you know, the very popular idea of the, you know, Steve Peterson and others, which is fine, but you have to manage your chimp. And I remember going to one football club and they had on the emblazon, how are you managing your chimp today? That negative spirit in you and having left the turn. I said, well, what about managing your champ? I said, well, what do you mean? I said, look, if you're actually a football team and winning 10 minutes, with 10 minutes to go 1-0, if you don't watch out, people start thinking about their chimp of when they've actually either lost or, or, or drawn. And they just retreat, retreat, retreat. What about if you recall a time that you're winning 1-0 and, uh, and you actually won? What did you do right then? Oh, well, what we did was we actually pressed the ball. We supported each other. We were not static. We pushed forward. We actually did that. We played the percentage play, but also a bit of positive play. We were, we're not into paralysis. I said, fine. What did you do? How did you support each other? How can you manage your cha channel your champ rather than, rather than worry about your chimp? No. That's a fascinating way of looking at it. Has anybody written that book, Neil? No, I mean, I wrote an article about channeling your ch yeah, champ rather than your chimp. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, I mean, the, obviously the Steve Peters and all these people, they talk about the chimp and it's very brilliantly and it, it's helped a lot of people. But if you go on my website, you'll see an article about that. Yeah. I, uh, but essentially, all of my writing is about channeling your champ rather than your chimp. Mm, I love it. Just a, just a simple flip over from chimp yeah. to champ. Yeah. Um, a bit like weaknesses to strengths. Perfect. Now, one of the things that you know I'm passionate about is work-life balance. And what I'd like to know from you is, what's your thoughts on it, and do you think it's a myth? Well, I think about, I think first thing is, it's, it's like, what is the goal? I always ask going questions when, yeah, what's the goal of life work balance? Hmm? Uh, what's the picture of success? What's the real result of achieving? Uh, because to me, life work balance is a how. Hmm? Uh, yeah, uh, the what is a person who feels, uh, I mean, you'd be better qualified than I on this, but, you know, if you actually say a person who feels in harmony with themselves, has flow experiences, has a full quality of life at work and at home, and actually is able to die feeling at peace, they might have had life work balance along the way, yeah? yeah. So it's like, what's the goal? Huh? What's the real result you want to achieve by life work balance? Yeah? Now, if you actually ask people, they will name, and you again, you're more of an expert than I. They want, they might say, so I want more time for myself and more time for my family and more time doing the things that I think are important. Yeah? That's yeah. A, that's a typical response. Yeah, sure. So then you say, fine, what's important to you in life? Hmm? Well, what's important in my life is raising our kids, helping my boy who's not good at school but is good at all things and having problems there. It's actually getting myself healthy again and feeling in touch with my feelings rather than having too many excess pounds on me. It's actually my wife and I being able to share adventures together because we don't get time together. It is actually finding something that I really want to do where I want to give back, etc., etc., etc. Now, you focus on the what. Hmm? What is the picture of success? If these, so what are the three things you want to be able to say when you're 80? If those are the three things, now let's work towards that. Now, for, for some people, that really means well, that actually our, my, my partner and I, we've made an agreement. Uh, our kids have left home, but we're, what I'm going to do is I'm going to work pretty tough now for the next three years. She's supportive of that or he's supportive of that. At the same time, they're doing their things. Uh, they're actually doing projects, and they love doing projects. After the kids left, they were a bit short of projects, so we actually we bought a flat, or we started doing something in the garden, or one, that kind of thing. Um, but we're going to do that, and we're going to do that for the next three years. And then after that, okay, we'll be able to have more money and do more stuff. But in the meantime, we're going to enjoy the journey. This is not purgatory. No. There is no point in having purgatory for three years with the hope that you'll then get to paradise. Yeah? Because actually we could pop off tomorrow. Huh? So therefore we have, to, we have to enjoy the journey as much as the goal. You see, so again, you know, that, that can get that life work blend in that sense. But again, it's around the picture of success and the purpose, and they work backwards. And the, and the way they manage their time is a how. So that's the way I view it. And, and on a personal level, Mike, have you got that perfect life work blend? Have you had it? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's, um, I've, I've always felt to a large extent that it's, it's been right, but for me, but you have to be aware of what I want to do in my life, you know? And if, if in my life all 
because I'm an educator, all I want to do is encourage people and give them tools they can use to achieve their picture of success. So whatever I've done since I was 23, and I'm now 73, in the last 50 years has been geared towards that. So at first it was throwing myself totally into working with mentally handicapped kids for six months. Then it was after that, it was throwing myself again totally into learning about how to run therapeutic communities to help people achieve their goals. And that meant, it meant doing, say, five days a week in the therapeutic community. And then on the weekend, doing a sort of residential kind of course that I attended and then coming back early Monday morning to go again. Now, that's not necessarily life work balance, but it was geared towards the purpose. And I felt alive, you know, it's a question of, it's a, it's a very famous, a very, very famous um, uh, professor, Joseph Campbell, who wrote the, uh, the hero with a thousand faces, who was the great, you know, the heroic journey that's, that's copied in virtually all films. And his work was made famous by George Lucas, who based Star Wars on it. Joseph Campbell studied myths and legends throughout the world. And then he says, what I have is loads and loads of people come to me and they come to me and say, can you tell me I want to find the meaning of life? What, what's the meaning of life? And he says, essentially what they were asking was, how can I feel more alive? That's all they were asking, really. <laughs> you look very much alive. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, well, yes, because I've been fortunate the last 50 years to be able to just uh, give, give, learn and, and give stuff to people. So that's, I've been very fortunate that way. So society plays a big part in conditioning us as human beings and what we should do, uh, i.e. education and follow that route and we then go into business. But the landscape's changing and we've got the likes of the millennials coming along that, that want different things. Thinking back, Mike, what, what advice would you give to people um, starting out now in terms of what they want to do? Uh, albeit, it may well challenge that in terms of what society says we ought to do. Well, it depends on the person, uh, first of all. It depends on their picture of success. So, I mean, I will always say, you know, when, what are the, when are you in your element? What are the things that give you positive energy? Those kind of things. And then start from there and then say, right, okay. Let's just say they, they say the thing that give me positive energy, I feel really alive when I am uh, playing music. I am really alive. I'll, I'll give you an example. One of my, the person I mentored, his son came to see me and his son is a really lovely guy. Uh, he actually, the, the, the guy in charge, I mentioned first as a Liverpool supporter, um, but his son is also a Liverpool supporter. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, no, true, no. As long as you're okay coming in third or fourth, it's fine. Um, and I think the key is that you'll have memories for life, at least. <laughs> so this boy is very lovely. I won't mention his name and I won't say too much more about him individually. But he, is, he could make it as a pro footballer, but he decided he doesn't want to. He'd prefer to be a, a coach as a football coach. So he, he actually, because of the culture, um, and he's been to top academies uh, in the country and he they wanted to sign him, but he decided, no, I'm going to go to do my coaching battles and stuff like that because I have a very strong view about what, how we can actually coach young footballers, that kind of thing. Now, this boy is, you know, he's um, 19. Huh? Uh, so, you know, again, I have to find out when does he come alive, huh? that kind of thing. Uh, and then say, right, here's a possible path for you. Yeah. Now, if you actually say that to people, and, and a lot of my job, remember my job has been to help people to make a living doing what they love, to build on their strengths and find satisfying work and get paid a salary for it. That's what I've been doing for the last 50 years. So I have to find the strengths, what, what, what they're good at, um, what gives them positive energy. And remember, it's not just where you deliver A's rather than B's or C's, it's what's the deepest satisfying activities in which you deliver A's rather than B's or C's. So, for example, for you, you might be able to deliver A's in a workshop in corporate land to many people. But actually, it will not necessarily be deeply satisfying to you unless actually it's hungry participants. Yeah? Yeah? So, therefore, we say, how can you find more hungry participants? Huh? who want what you offer. 
So my, I, what I say to people is, first of all, start from within, and what's the deepest satisfying activities in which you give A's rather than B's or C's, and you can usually find those within about 15 minutes huh? with people. Then the question is, and then you say, right, let's think of the three kind of eternal skills that all people have had throughout history and made a living doing what they love. Number one, they built on their strength. Second, they found sponsors, employers or customers who want to hire them for what they do best. And third, they've helped those customers to achieve success. So it's, it's strengths, sponsors, and success. That's what it is. Uh, it's very simple, and it doesn't matter if your name is Michelangelo, yeah? uh, or anything, yeah? or Steve Jobs, it doesn't matter. Or Anita Roddick, it's exactly the same. Yeah? Um, and so uh, people think it's very, very complex. It isn't, it's very simple. And if you study success, you get to the answers very quickly. Which is probably why academics don't study success, no? But you know, because, <coughs> because it might put them out of business. And so on. Now, of course, what's very interesting these days is you have young people being told, uh, "Look, um, what you do need to do is it's the whole movement in particularly started in the U.S. But as you know, they've got the so-called the four C's of the 21st century skills, which is uh, when they study it, ask employers at the beginning of this millennium, what are the skills that you want actually young people to demonstrate if they're going to contribute to the workforce? They said the four C's, which are critical thinking, creativity, collaboration, and communication. Those are the four C's. I call it clear thinking rather than critical thinking. But all right, so they say this is what, what the kids need to learn. Um, because, it, because if you take the cliche, the VUCA world, a world that's volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And the only real thing is to keep focusing on your values, which are the anchor at the bottom of the ocean of this VUCA world, because the rest is like the cork on the top. Follow your values and, and actually practice these four C's. Um, now, the interesting thing is you don't actually have to teach these four C's to kids because they all pursue them when they're following their hobbies. Yeah. If you were actually a, let's just say, when did you start following Liverpool? Let me ask you. Uh, back in the early 80s. So what, how old were you? Seven or eight. Seven or eight. What was the first away match you went to? Uh, it's actually Crystal Palace. Okay. Did you go by yourself or did you go with somebody else? No, it was school. Okay, all right, fine. What was the first away match you went with, to by yourself or with some friends? Um, I don't know. Okay. Whatever it was, unless it was at Everton. <laughs> no, it wasn't ever. They have to use the four C's. Critical thinking. Okay. Clear thinking. What's the end result? What is Z? I want to go there. Let's just say you're going to Arsenal. I want to go to Highbury. How do I get there? Hmm? What's the map? Yeah. yeah. Let me get, gather information. Because what I want to do is I want I need to get to Highbury from uh, from the Wirral or wherever I'm living and to get back. So where do, how do I do that? I look at the trains, etc. Is there a football special? What is it? I need to look at all the options. Creativity. Is there another way? How do I do that? Collaborate. Do I go with friends or by myself? Yeah. Communicate. I have to communicate to my parents about it and where I'm going to go and make sure that they feel safe and I have to communicate with people on the way. You use all the four C's. Yeah. You don't have to teach this. But remember that schooling was dedicated to driving it out and then criticizing people where, of course, they didn't show it when they were older. Yeah. Yeah. So again, what you do with young people is, number one, what are you passionate about, but where, where can you actually deliver? What do you care deeply about? I think Seth Godin, the marketeer, had a very good view. He says some people talk about defining your calling. I talk about, he said, defining your caring. What do you care deeply about? Yeah. And he gave the example of him going to learn the piano or, or a musical instrument, and he could do it, but he didn't really care about it. Yeah. It was until he could find stuff he cared about, then he could put the quality in. Yeah? So you can find this. Yeah? It's a bit, so you find this, and then say, right, what, what are your strengths? What's the thing where you could deliver A rather than B and C's? Who's your potential customers, your potential sponsors who might pay you for this? Because you can just do it. It's not a problem. But if you want to be paid for it, the crucial thing is to find out your potential customers. Who's the kind of people that you work best with? Yeah? So, for example, I say, if your strength is an enabler to give people practical tools they can use to look after their well-being and have a wonderful life and do great work, 
uh, and get paid for it. So fine, who's your perfect customers? And I know it'll be people who are hungry, are open to learning from, <coughs> excuse me, from many different fields, who, who can take it and can integrate it and use it in their way uh, and stuff, and, and who can maybe are willing to pass it on as well. Um, so you want people to have that drive and hunger. So where do you find those people? Hmm? That's the key. So that's the next step is where do I find these potential customers? Then how can I position what I offer in a way so it helps people to succeed? And then you get to the whole idea of if I actually know my strengths, who are my potential sponsors? Who's my target group? So, for example, my target group is a very cool group. It's people who are positive, who appear to be professional and want to be pioneers or pace setters. Yeah. That's all of the only people I work with. I'm no good at working with people who just want to be, you know, can maintain the present system. I, I am only good with a certain target group. How do you reach those? And then the crucial thing is how do you reach them in a way that fits your value system? Now, my value system is about giving stuff to people. It's never actually trying to charge for stuff until they ask about things and, uh, and stuff like about and unless they want to hire me. I just give, 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 because that's what I... That's what I learned in the early 70s. People were saying you have to charge for your IP and all that stuff. I said, no, you just give it away. It's been given to you, you give it away. Uh, because the real stuff is actually making it work with the client, proving it works. Yeah, that sort of and, thing. And you do, you can see that in everything you do. You give everything away. Yeah, absolutely. It didn't belong to me anyway. I was giving it. You know, Maslow, Frankel, you know, they gave it. Huh? So how on earth can be somebody be so arrogant to say, actually, you might have changed a few words here, a few models there, and now you're going to charge for it. No, no. There are, there are only so many eternal truths. Yeah, And the eternal truths about making a living, doing what you love, are build on your strengths, find sponsors who will pay you, and deliver success to them. That's all it is. Huh? Now, how you do that will differ from person to person huh? all the time. Uh, but that's where the uniqueness comes in. Hmm? So, um, I mean, what I charge, the only thing I really charge for in the sense is this, if you think about the whole idea of when people go through a development phase, they go through awareness, application and achievement. Now, the crucial thing is, it's quite easy to raise awareness, but actually what a buyer wants is application. Yeah, they want to say, I, I, I understand this thing about emotional intelligence, I understand this thing, but how do I apply it? So my role was to try to give people practical tools they could apply in order to achieve. Yeah, I could talk about awareness till the cows come home. You know, and you'll see on this podcast, it's a very there's a standing joke when I'm actually uh, running workshops. I don't run workshops much, but you know, if you ask me a question, I'll talk for 45 minutes, and people would say, "Well, actually, what time is the same group would say, what time is lunch? 12:30. Okay, it's 11:45. What about if you ask?" <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll get a tour around various models, everything from existential psychology to actual political movements in New England to whatever you'll get it. Yeah. But, but in part, that is you giving away stuff at the same time. Yeah, it's just passing it on. Yeah, that's what you do. You pass stuff on. That's all we can do. Yeah? We pass stuff on with a certain kind of color, like a certain kind of interpretation, uh, and those kind of things. Mike, I, I could talk to you all day and listen to you all day, um, but I know at the same time you you have other commitments. Um, I have a short series of questions which I'm going to ask each guest. Um, I'm saying 60-second quick-fire questions, but that might be a challenge, so I might let you have two minutes. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's really just to share some very quick insight and, and some very different insight to um, the rest of the stuff that we've talked about. Um, I know you give away an awful lot of stuff. Uh, in terms of social media, you're, you're present on social media. What's your social media platform of choice, if you could only use one of them? If I could only use one, I, it, it'd probably be LinkedIn. Okay. And any particular reason why? Yeah, because there are three things. I mean, the, the, it's, the more, it's the more professional sharing. I mean, I do Facebook, I do Twitter and stuff like that. But essentially, the reason I use, say, LinkedIn is because that's where I post my blogs. Yeah, and and it's very, I don't, I very seldom post my blogs on Facebook. Huh? I sometimes do, but very seldom. Okay, we live in a celebrity-type world uh, currently. 
Is there a particular celebrity, politician or public figure that you admire and admit to following on social media? I don't follow any of them on social media. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think um, not really. The only people I would tend to follow much more is a group like the Elders uh, that was found. Yeah, uh, that was founded. Uh, uh, you know, which are people like Mary Robinson and others who who are, are trying to share their wisdom with the world. So those are the kind of people I would follow and admire. Um, I'm sure this one will be insightful and a challenge for you. You have three guests to choose for dinner, past or present. Who do you invite? It could have to be the classic ones, wouldn't it? It could have to be sort of Nelson Mandela, Victor Frankl, and Abraham Maslow. Oh, yeah. oh no, no, I, I, but then I have well, to. change your mind. Then, oh, no, I'm going to add three more. <laughs> Go on, then. It would be Maria Montessori, Anita Roddick, and Penny Braun, who founded the, who founded the Cancer Bristol Health, uh, the Bristol Cancer Health Centre. So dinner party now. Yeah. Um, what are you currently reading, Mike? Um, the last book I read was a book called, which was title I've forgotten because I've given it away, was, um, a, a, I can later on tell you what the title was, but it was about behavioral uh, rescue. It was, it was a book on behavior for rescuers. And about how the rescuer should needs to be able to take care of themselves. So it was, the, it was for medics, it was for people in psychiatric hospitals, it was for people whom uh, who uh, their job is about giving to others. Um, but it was actually about the whole idea of how do you take care of yourself. And what was wonderful was how lots and lots of do's and don'ts. So if you're approaching somebody who's suicidal, do do this, but don't do this. Hmm? Those kind of things. If you're dealing with somebody who's psychotic, do do this, don't do this. If you're lying on the scene of an accident where people are in distress, do do this, don't do this. It was very, very simple uh, book. And I could actually, I'll, I'll send you the title later. Um, I'm, I'm not very good on titles. but That's please. Right. I'll include it in the show notes. Are, are you a podcast fan? Not really, although I'm on a podcast now. <laughs> what, is, what, what I mean by that is um, because... I'm not very good at listening because uh, my primary senses are visual mm, and kinesthetic. Uh, it's not it's not listening mm, so much. Uh, again, I have to make pictures when I listen. Mm. So it's, um, so it's more in the past. It well, obviously it was Ted's Ted talks in the past. Um, now it's more uh, kind of um, uh, there's the occasional Ted one I do. Uh, and of course, my favourite there was obviously not only the famous Ken Robinson one, even though he's an Everton supporter and you wouldn't necessarily like that or his views on education, uh, is probably uh, the fantastic one by Joe mm -hmm. Berry, who um, was this, the founder of Building Bridges for Peace. And Joe talked about uh, a dad being dying in the Brighton bombing and then her making contact with the man who planted the bomb. Patrick Lynch, uh, and then them building together a relationship, and now they go around the world talking about building bridges for peace. And if there's only one TED thing people should look at, it, it's Joe Berry's, and I've, I've made contact with Joe since, which is a wonderful person. Well, it's, it's one I've not watched, actually, so I will uh, have a look at that. Um, yeah. I've watched Ken Robinson. Um, I didn't realise he was an Everton fan. Yes, because that was his... That was when he was big. He wanted to play Central for Everton until he got polio. Yeah. And I think his brother um, did was was on the books of Everton. I can't be sure. Well, we won't hold that against him. Um, one thing you wish you'd invented. Nothing. I don't think I wish. Okay. Uh, what item do you take with you on a long journey? Is it a book, magazine, some music? It's always my laptop. Always your laptop. A guilty pleasure which you do when you have some time to yourself. I'm not sure either. Guilt is a choice, remember. <laughs> I um, my way of 
pottering around at night is to just have television on the back in the background with no sound on and I'm either watching sport or I'm watching famous old detective things like Norse or Endeavour or something like that. But it's always with, often with the sound off in the background. Interesting. Um, I know you're a Derby County fan. Would you rather see them back in the Premier League or see them lift the FA Cup? Well, again, you have to look at the picture of success. The picture of success for Derby, like many clubs, is to be a, uh, build a sustainable club that can challenge for uh, honours in the Premier League. In order to do that, not only do you have to have the infrastructure on the emotional level, uh, you also have it on an economic level. At the moment, we've got a, a, a person who, Mel Morris, who actually puts lots of money into them. It's a question of how long sustainable. So if you get promotion, then you get that money, and therefore you're able to actually maintain the infrastructure on a long-term basis. So it's going to be promotion. Have they asked you to work with them? I've worked with them a little bit in the past when one of the managers was there, uh, but very little. Um, so. Okay, a few questions to finish, Mike. Who would you like to see uh, or hear um, as a future guest on my podcast? I think uh, Katie Legend would be fantastic. Uh, and... Uh, and then also Barry Hopson. Hopson. Uh, well, Katie and Barry wrote the portfolio of uh, work on a bit on life work blend. So I think those two would be good. I'll, I'll definitely reach out, and I know you and I have spoken uh, about both of them and the book, um, which I've read actually and, and was fascinated by. Um, what projects are you currently working on, um, and how can people find out more about what you generally do? I mean, the, the normal project that I'm working on is uh, trying to just put stuff on the website, uh, on my blog. I usually write two, one or two pieces a week. I am still, uh, the projects that I'm working with uh, that I get paid for are uh, working with lots of pioneering companies. I'm, I'm still mentoring some people and working with some companies that I've been working with for over 20 years. They can't get rid of them, apparently. Um, so, interesting enough that most of my work came out of, in, in the commercial sector, came out of my early work with Air Miles in the early 90s. As a result of that, uh, probably since then, um, many of those leaders from the Air Miles have gone on uh, to actually be great leaders in pioneering digital companies, and they took me with them. And so I, I, that's how it's actually spread out since then. And I'm still working with a lot of those people. So I do about 30 days on the year, uh, a year on the road, doing super teams and doing uh, mentoring. But I do a lot now by Skype or Blue Jeans or whatever it is. So currently I am doing Skype for like this week. I've been, uh, next week I'll be in Skype for people in L.A., New York, uh, Helsinki, across the world. And that's and we have an hour session and, and, and we go from there. Okay. And one final takeaway for the listeners. One final thing that you want to leave us with. Well, I think to give it some context, it's, it's a very simple one. Uh, to give context, it was when Aldous Oxley was asked at the end of his life, what advice do you want to give to people? Because you've dabbled in LSD, you wrote, you know, uh, uh, about how you can get higher consciousness, brave new world, those kind of things. They said to the audience, this sounds very much of a cop-out, but I believe in it. I've done all these things. And he said, if, I, if you ask my advice, it's quite simple. It's um, you know, be kinder. And for me, it would be three words. Be an encourager. That's what Thank you so much, Mike, for taking the time out today to share so much brilliant stuff. Um, I'm going to try and capture it the best I can in terms of show notes. And I'll put links to uh, your different websites and, and how people can connect with you if they want to. But thank you very much indeed for you know, taking the time and, and just sharing uh, so many stories and, and so much experiences. Thank you. It's my pleasure, and I hope you and Liverpool have a great rest of the year. A big thank you to Mike Pegg for sharing so much information during that interview. 
You can find out more about Mike on his website, thepositiveencourager.global. And you can also follow Mike on Twitter at MikePeg1. In true Mike's style, he has kindly offered to give away a signed copy of his book, The Art of Strength Coaching. To enter this competition, you need to do one of two things. Either on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, like and leave a comment on the episode post. Or on iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud, rate and write a review on the show. The winner will be announced in episode two of Perfect Imbalance and the details will be published on the website. Full terms and conditions can be found on the website igniteperformance.co.uk. If you've enjoyed the show, then please do subscribe to the Perfect Imbalance podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud or Stitcher. Also, I'd love you to share it with your friends as well. Feel free to leave the show a rating and a comment. It will help the podcast reach more people and allow others to consider alternatives to striving for a work-life balance. Before I sign off, I want to leave you with a book, article and TED talk suggested by Mike. The book is Behavioural First Aid, Managing Emotions During Emergencies by Virginia J. Duffy. The article is Channeling Your Champ and the TED Talk is Building Bridges for Peace by Joe Berry. All the links can be found in the show notes. Tune in next time to hear me interviewing Kim Ingleby, the mind-body mentor. Until then, thank you for listening to The Perfect Imbalance. Remember this, when you have balance, enjoy it. When you've got an imbalance, embrace it. For in those moments, you're striving towards achieving your next success, increasing your happiness, or looking for greater fulfillment. Bye for now.